Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the latest edition of the Royal Blue Podcast. My name is Joe Thomas. I'm the Echoes Everson FC correspondent. Alongside me today, we have got Goodison Park ever-presence. Fortunately or unfortunately, depending on how you look at things at the moment, Paul Wheelock and Gav Buckland. And we've also got the Echoes Business of Football correspondent, Dave Powell, who'll be here to take us through a few more bits and pieces on the, the 777 proposed takeover of Everton, which obviously announced on Friday and we, we, we covered it in that podcast, but there's a little bit more flesh on the bone coming through and Dave will take us through that. But there's only one place to start. That is, of course, Goodison Park, the Super Sunday billing. Felt like it had every reason to be the Super Sunday billing going into yesterday's game. I think 4.30 on the, on, on the Sunday afternoon. You had so many potential storylines around Everton, the takeover, Arsenal and their fight for the title. You know, the, the history between the sides. Everton somehow managed to conspire to continuously beat Arsenal in this game, however their plight's been off the pitch. So even though it was only moved to that schedule, you know, a fortnight ago, quite shamefully by the TV companies, I thought I had every right to be there. Unfortunately, it didn't provide the entertainment that uh, I think the two uh, broadcasters would have hoped for, Paul. No, one to forget, wasn't it, really? Uh, I think if you're going to set up the way that we did, the only way you can come out there with a, a modicum of happiness is if you end up with probably the nil-nil draw that I think it's fair to assume that Sean Dyche was, was playing for. The fact that we lost 1-0, it just made it made it all the, wor- all the worse, really, because... Don't get me wrong, the gap between Arsenal and Everton is huge. Uh, even though Arsenal didn't play particularly well yesterday, the, the gap is huge and there's no shame in losing 1-0 to them at home. But I think the most disappointing aspect was the fact that I think a lot of us left the ground thinking that we, we didn't really have a go. You know, Certainly compared to the games we've had against Arsenal in recent years and, and most recently, obviously, in Sean Dyche's his first game in charge, it was... Uh, you know, as I say, it, it, it's not the end of the world to lose at home to Arsenal. The the, the results against Fulham and Wolves could well be far more damaging. But yeah, I, I didn't feel like I got my money's worth yesterday. <laughs> what did you make of things? I think it's fair to say going into the game that you know, for all the, the hope and the expectation, and and obviously nobody should come to Goodison Park and expect to win. I think most Everton fans would have accepted that Everton were underdogs going into yesterday. And that's how it played out onto the pitch. I mean, bear in mind that context. How disappointed or frustrated were you actually with what happened within that 90, only 94 minutes yesterday? It's um, one of the most disappointing performances we've seen from Everton at home for, for many a long, a long time. Really? Um, notwithstanding who we were playing, I, I, I I mean, it's when you go back to Brighton yeah. last season, Newcastle last season, and, and you know some of those really but disappointing games. I could, I could, at least in those games, you could see game plans and and, and efforts, and and you know, but they just did badly. But on yesterday, after thirty minutes, like a lot of people, I was just I was just sitting there and thinking, what's our game plan here? 
got like a 4-1-4-1. We just walked watching Arsenal pass the ball in front of us across the pitch and trying to get in behind us. And it was quite clear we didn't have one because as soon as we got the ball, within about like 10 seconds, we'd lost it again. And and that was that was why I, I would say it's one of the worst performances um, because we should have been doing better. And I get, I get... I get this dice fitness and we've spoken about the start of the season, Joe, remember in one of the pods saying if we haven't got, you know, obviously got a, a small squad, is, you know, work hard, try and bridge some gaps by being also competitive. And, you know, we have had to say the dice fitness and all this and whatever he says about maximum effort is the minimum requirement or whatever it is. And I saw none of that yesterday. You know, apart from the defence, I think. Um and and that was the disappointment. We just we were just allowed Arsenal to do anything they wanted and, and didn't have a plan in possession. And that was the thing, wasn't it? You know, how, how many co- you would expect on a, in a ninety-minute game to have at least some coherence play in this in their final third, even just by the law of averages, they take they take that. And we we didn't we didn't have that at all. And that, that's reflected in the number of touches that players had on our, on our team. And that, so that's why I'm, I'm saying it's one of those disappointing performances over the last few years at Goodison. Gav, do you, do, I'll stick with you. Do you think that there was no game plan or do you think that there was a game plan that was just on the day very poorly executed? And then I, I think I'm asking you there yeah. essentially, are you putting this on the players or are you putting this on Deitch? Um, I'll I put it on dice to be honest with you actually because it was quite clear about the when we, when we we had a game plan to contain Arsenal didn't we which, which is fine 4-1-4-1 four, one, four, one, and we played two narrow banks of four he's obviously afraid of that space between you know what, what we've been vulnerable for all season between the midfield and, and, and the back four which opposition players are filled and you know see their players over the garden players and people like that who really really hated in those areas so he, he played two very low banks of four so I've not got a problem with that. The, the problem I've got is, is what we we made no effort to win the to win the ball back. And once we had the ball, what was our plan when we had him? And what was our plan to get up the pitch? And there was I just saw none of that. The, the game plan just appeared to be put nine men behind the ball. Albeit we made that reasonably effective, and just play for the nil nil, and and that was it. And that, that was really disappointing for me. And, and and I think the players, when we did have possession, some of our passing was just woeful, which we'll probably talk about. And, and, and so, yeah, dice for me, the way they set up, I think at times when we had the ball, the players as well for their, um, the, you know, the, the, the lack of accuracy in the, in the passing. But we, we just didn't appear to have a game plan other than containment. And you're not going to get anything from football games if that's your plan. So I think 80% fits on dice on me, to be fair. See, I'm, I'm a bit torn on this because I, I can understand why people are, I can certainly understand why people are frustrated having watched it. It, it, was a, it was a dire game and it was a bad performance. There's no getting away around that. Everton on the ball were, were atrocious. You know, the ball retention was, was, was terrible. They were sloppy. They were poor in their decision-making. I can kind of I can kind of understand what Dice was trying to do, and he obviously sit deep, have a compact, you know, two two bags of con- the defensive lines, keep it con- uh, draw Arsenal onto them, and obviously try and win the ball, and then set Dan Juma free, set McNeil free, set Beto free. Obviously, on the occasions when they did win the ball, 
you know, they weren't able to do that. As, as we've said, that the pass and the distribution was, was, was really, really bad, of course. But I did think for the first half, I thought it was a competent defensive display. Um, I thought that Arsenal didn't really create a chance. Obviously, they had the goal that was disallowed, if you accept that that was offside. Mm. They didn't really create a chance. I thought that Everton had an opportunity after just after the goal. So Gabriel Martinelli coming off, I thought it was a big boost to Everton because he's not quite as intense and aggressive in his forward movement. Trossard isn't quite as aggressive and intense in his uh, forward movement as someone like Gabriel Martinelli. So what it did was it gave Deitch then the opportunity to switch his wingers a little bit and gave Everton a chance to get out, which they, they didn't do. But, you know, Everton were applauded all off at half-time. I, I didn't go into half-time thinking it was panic stations. And I think, yeah. you know, bearing in mind this was against Arsenal, I don't think that was the worst first half they could have been, albeit uninspiring. Obviously, second half, Arsenal started brightly. I think we understand the goal was coming. And I think we can also all accept that once that goal came, Everton, went, you know, they could have... Deitch talks about only being four minutes valid on time. They could have been 40. Everton weren't going to score yesterday. No, no, no. And that is obviously a problem. But Arsenal are also very, very good defensively. You know, they have one of the best defence in the league so far this season. So there is some degree that to which I'm willing to, you know, mitigating circumstances I'm willing to consider. Yeah, 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 of course. I obviously spoke to him after the game and I thought he actually spoke quite well. Um, and this has come from someone that doesn't always think he does after the games you know some people listening to this or watching this might have seen the interaction I had with him after Sheffield United which I thought he handled poorly the aftermath that game but, but there are times after bad performances where he comes out and he's quite combative or he's quite defensive and I thought he was quite open yesterday and, and the way in which he was talking you know owned up to the lack of quality in the transition the sloppiness within the possession um and also pointed to the poor decision-making that was made on the pitch. And I, I had a little bit of sympathy with him that actually I thought, having listened to him, there might have been a game plan, like I said a minute ago, like I asked you, Gav, had been poorly executed rather than having been no plan whatsoever. I mean, Paul, you know, you understand the game certainly a lot better than I do. I mean, what, what was your takeaway on that? Where do you lay the blame for and how, how bad do you think it was? Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Oh, uh, I, I thought yesterday it's tricky, isn't it? I, I for years now with Everton's midfield, you tear your hair out at the the, the the lack of basic passing at times. And I thought yesterday there were there were moments. I mean, Sean Dykes did mention in the press conference, obviously, which you were talking about there. We did have good moments for transition. And I, that was clearly the game plan, wasn't it? To contain and then to spring on the counter-attack. And there were moments where Anana particularly, Idrissa Gay, I can, I can remember a few of occasions, him, Decore, and the passing just wasn't good enough. And I, I thought I thought yesterday was kind of maybe a bit of an eye-opener of how much we're going to miss Alex Awobi because for all, his, for all his faults, uh, he is 
the kind of player who can take a pass and can pick a pass. And the times he gave the ball away, he was always being brave with it. Uh, so I, I do think Sean Knight was, was, was let down by by moments of, of, of quality, really, in, in, in his midfield particularly. But equally, as Gav said earlier, if, if you set up like that, you, you're always at a risk as if, if Arsenal score. And I, I, I was kind of like strangely impressed by Arsenal yesterday. They didn't make it an emotional game, did they? I've seen City do this at Goodison a number of years. It's almost boring. It's almost boring. But Arsenal won here for six years. So they took the emotion out of the game. And it was just really, really dull. And I just don't think the crowd got going. I don't think the players got going. But certainly after you go one down, the game plan at that stage has to change. You know, as I, as I said in the first comments on, on today's pod, you can you can walk away and accept a boring nil-nil draw against the team of Arsenal's quality, but it's what happens after you go one down. Uh, and, and, and Sean Dyche, you know, he's, he's labelled as a long ball manager in, in some quarters. Uh, and strangely, since he's come to Everton, I've actually been more impressed by the way he's got Everton attacking and the and, and the setup play. And I think for a long period, if say Neil Mopai, without putting it on him, would have taken some of his chances, uh, and if we would have had a fit and available striker for a lot of his tenure, I think we would have scored a lot more goals. And I know he he, he referred to XG again after the game last night. Uh, but on the flip side, I've not always been impressed that much defensively, which was a surprise given that. A lot of people thought that's what he would bring to Everton. Uh, yesterday, I thought it, it was it was the flip. It was the flip side. I thought I would have expected more performances like that that from Sean Dyche during his time at Everton. Uh, but the the good things that he brought to us just wasn't there yesterday. You know, I just I think the players weren't good. But I, I have to agree with Gareth. It's 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 largely on Dyche Dyche for me yesterday. I just didn't I, as good as all are. We are Everton. We. You know, we we have got a good record against Arsenal at home over Chelsea. We give Liverpool a game at home. I don't think it's a given. Maybe apart from City these days, who come together, uh, Goodison is one of the you know the big six teams and expect to walk all over us. And I thought Arsenal left yesterday, having not really been tested, to be honest. Yeah, we know that there's a gulf in quality between the two squads. That isn't under any dispute. You know, we've spoken about tactics and approach to the game there. Were you more disappointed by the setup and the lack of ambition? Or were you more disappointed by, again, something, something I think we can agree on was, was probably a, a bit of a lack of fight from the Everton players? Because wow. you know, when you, you know, we saw this very much in the, game, in the same fixture in February when Everton did win this match, that... You know, if you're a team that's perhaps lacking in the the ability of the of, of the opposition, one thing that you can do to try and level the playing field a little bit is is essentially try and drag them down to your level a bit, turn it into a bit of a scrap, get at them. Watch match today too. Uh, they did a big segment on basically how many wow. how many passes Arsenal were able to put together from the kickoff without Everton even getting near not not only to the ball but to even laying a you know, laying a finger on any of the Arsenal players just to let them know that they were there and they were in a game. I mean, that, that was disappointing yesterday, wasn't it, in that element? Yeah, yeah, and, and that's, I, I mean, I think, you know, when you're saying about poor performances and stuff and you've seen worse, and I think, I think what I'd say there is, the way that, and I suppose the best to sum that up by saying we didn't give ourselves an opportunity to play badly because the easiest thing in football, I know some of us would disagree, is to set up a defence, isn't it? You know, you, you can you can do that. You can contain if you put numbers there and dice is experience to do that. We didn't give ourselves 
an opportunity to play badly because you didn't take any risks at any point really during the course of the game. And that, that's that's it for me. I think in terms of the two things you mentioned there, I think the setup of the t- team is wrong. I could start, you know, my normal bashing the drum about not having a midfield balance. Um, I felt that Garner should have played yesterday, James Garner, that is. The way we set up, uh, in, probably instead of me, probably the core, I, I think that was that, so that was set up. I didn't think his substitutions were great, by the way. I'll cover that off later. Um, so that that set up, yeah, it was just uh, it was the wrong players. And Garner's a player, James Garner's a player who can pass a ball and can put his foot on it. And that might have given us a little bit of a little bit of an opportunity just to to, to break break Arsenal's momentum. And um, I think yeah, yeah, you, you are right, isn't it? That the second bit I think was equally frustrating that. I don't know if they showed the montage on match of day two last night. They showed the opening minutes of the, the game in February in the game yesterday. And and I know the manager's first game is not necessarily the 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 you know the best comparison. But it was quite it was just watching two completely different games, wasn't it? When they kicked off at Arsenal in February, we were all over them. And yesterday we kicked off, we were like nine men at the edge of our penalty area. And yeah, it, and I think I detected that and especially when we had like you played like as I say four one four one we had Garn uh, Garner Gay and Takore reasonably advanced and they should have been getting into the opposition defence and they were just standing off weren't they and the second half it was just the, the second half was even worse for me you know I mean I always got well, got told to what you watch football don't watch the ball watch what's thirty yards ahead of, of the ball that's where the all the incest and stuff goes on. But yesterday, you didn't have to do that because all of the play was contained within about a 20-yard you know, wide margin at the edge of our penalty area, wasn't it? Hmm. In the second half. So you could see exactly what was happening whilst watching the ball. And and the fact, yeah, the, with one or two exceptions, it was the lack of pressing and that, that desire and biting in, in the centre of the park that was really frustrating for me as well, as apart from the set-up. Paul, I think... Obviously, Gav uh, suggests that he decide Garner. I mean, there were some interesting decisions that Sean Dyche had to make going into this into this match. Some of them would have come as a surprise. Obviously, he chose better over Dominic Calvert-Lewin. I think that was probably a 50-50. Um, but then bringing in Vitaly Mikolenko and moving Ashley Young to right back instead of Patterson. I mean, what did you think of that? Uh, I, I, I wasn't surprised, to be honest, Uh I think Patterson had a, a really good second half against Sheffield United. Thought he was, he was really good going forward. But I think he's had a pretty tough start to the season. He's not alone. And if we were going to play so defensively like we did yesterday, probably Mikolenko, I, I, I'm, I'm safe to assume that I think he's a better a better defender than Patterson. I thought Mikolenko gave the ball away a couple of times. But, I thought, but outside of Bramthwaite, for me, he was probably our best player yesterday. He was up against a, a world-class player in uh Bukayo Saka and I thought he did pretty well Mikolenko I think he could be happy with his day's work so I, I think he was justified in that selection I thought Young was, was okay set pieces aside which is a, which is an ongoing issue with actually Young corners and free kicks at the moment but I think defensively he was pretty good as well uh, yeah going going forward I, I know Gav you've been saying on this podcast for a number of years about the midfield balance and it's it's going to be coming to even more question now that Dominic Calvert-Lewin's fit because can can you afford to go four four two and then who's your best two there? I don't think he knows his best three yet, to be honest. And 
I think it might have been slightly, you know, she's not very emotional, is he? But he was, he, I thought his, his, his missions around the Wobie were quite interesting. Uh, I know he may not have always played in, in probably what Alex Wobie thought was his strongest positions, but he was a go-to player for him, wasn't he? Uh, and I, I wonder if he's got, a, he's got a real issue there, I think, Sean Dykes now. I think not only whether he's going to play two up front and then whether we've got two midfielders who can do a job to, to hold the midfield together while we do that. But looking at that yesterday, I just thought we were de- desperately lacking in quality and creativity, really. It may change a little bit when, when Harrison comes back because we'll have a, a more natural player who plays on the right. Uh, but I, I, I kind of agreed with the, the starting lineup. I could see where he was going with it. But if we're going to need some more ball plays in midfield, which we desperately look like we, we do now, you do wonder if whether Garner should play more. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, like I, I, I think it said it at the time, wrote it at the time, I think Iwobi is an absolutely huge loss um, for, for having, regardless as to whether or not Deitch was going to play him in the middle, you know, left of the midfield three, which is probably his best position, or out wide. I think we really missed it yesterday, you know, having that opportunity to have somebody that could pick up the ball in the edge of his area and either carry it 20 yards forward or, you know, was probably our most effective player at picking that 20-yard ball to find better with a channel, slip him in behind a full-back help, get Everton up the up, up the pitch. And I think Everton are going to miss that a lot this season. I've got to be honest, I don't think Sean Dyche plans to play a lot through the middle. So for all the, the calls for ball players in the middle, I'm not sure how much we're going to see of that this season, whether people like it or not. I think it's going to be hit the channels for Dan Juma and McNeil or, you know, hit the head of, of, of Beto. Uh, or, or Dominic Calvert-Lewin. Um, Paul, you kind of alluded to it there with the set pieces, because I think that's another big issue. Probably a compromise here between both you and Gav. Feels like the, or feel like I'm onto a winner with both of you. It feels like the the argument to include Garner wherever it is on the pitch, James Garner, that is, you know, there are a couple of layers supporting that, I think, at the moment. One, you know, the option just to even just to freshen up that midfield free and let them know that they're not all guaranteed starters might help. But, you know, on the flip side, you could play them right back in that as well, I think. And just to have somebody there with the better distribution on the pitch, because the set pieces have been woeful this season, haven't they, Gavin? For a side that, you know, creates so little. And for a side that should be quite good in the air, when you look at, you look like Tarkovsky and, you know, whether it's DCL or Beto and Decore and some of the other players. I mean, that's something that the dice has got to sort out pretty quickly, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Because um, what, what happens is not, not only do you become a don't become a threat, you also give the opportunity to break quickly. Don't need you know when the goalie. I mean, how many catches the goalie made the last few this season from our set pieces? Loads. Um, yeah, and 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 you did have McNeil on. McNeil was a player. I don't know what you thought, Joe. I thought he looked. He didn't look fit yesterday. No, me. Don't know what I said, but after the game but he was a player who quite clearly hadn't had very little certainly match fitness he was just way way off the pace and um, but he, he should have been on set pieces and it was uh, it was yeah our only chance yesterday I think we, we got one corner but as ever any crosses any anything from a corner went straight to straight to their, their keeper and then he'd give them a, a chance to, to, to possibly break which is I, I, you might want to talk about their goal but that's where I was sitting in the, in the press box yesterday, as soon as this happened, he said, like, this is going to cost us. Is know their goal. Watch about a minute before their goal. Pickford gets the ball. And rather than cooling things down and 
letting everybody get off the pitch and just generally taking the sting out of the game. He waxed the ball as quickly, like like the Wolves goal on Saturday. Waxed the ball as far off the pitch as possible, over the heads of our players are on the forward. Arsenal pick it up, get the ball back at the edge of our box, get the corner, then he score. And I thought that was really poor play from Pickford, to put poor choice, because it was completely at odds with what we were trying to achieve during the game. And ultimately, it, was, it started the chain of events, exactly later where they score. And I thought that was that was that wasn't great uh, from somebody should have really, you know. Um, how much, how much do you think, obviously, because you know, for all that being said, there was one big change that happened just before Pickford that does that clearance. That's obviously Dominic Avalon had come on. So I mean, I mean, do you think it was either? Do you think it was still a bad decision, or do you think that the fact that he had Dominic Avalon to, to aim for, who, well, judging by those, judging by those. Yeah, with him and Beto looks probably he. You know, we know what Dominic Cavalier can do in the air, and he probably looks more aggressive in the air than than, than Beto did. Do you think it was an attempt to try and exploit the potential of Dan and from that? The ball went the halfway lines, and you know, and ultimately went over his head. I mean, do that when everybody's in position because as soon as they won the ball back, we were out of shape then completely. And I, I just thought it was at odds with our carefully cultivated plan to get to get to get a point. Um yeah, I mean he wasn't lucky he was a bit unlucky with the substitution, wasn't he? Because he brought Calvert Lewin just behind just before they scored and and I'm sure if if it was nil nil, if, if there was one nil and Beto being on the pitch, he may have wanted both of them on the pitch. But I, I didn't understand that substitution either, Joe, because you've got a number nine who's completely isolated, not doing anything. And you place him by a number nine who's going to be isolated, not going to do anything. And, and that was a bit of a waste. And I thought that Decore Garner one was a, I didn't understand that either. As much as wanted Garner on the pitch, I would have put, I would have moved Decore further up the pitch at that point and brought Garner on for say Garner Gay or something. I didn't get that at all. And um, and they were two two strange uh, strange substitutions for me. It's, you know when you talk about who was to blame yesterday, the other players. I'd, I'd, I'd put some of that substitution stuff on. On dice, though, notwithstanding the fact he was a little bit unlucky that he changed, he might want to both better on Calvert Lewin if he was chasing the game. He took him off just before, better off just before they scored. But it was, it was well, I watched it again this morning by Pickford. It was just, uh, it was just, why are you doing that? You don't need to do it. It was a bit like the Wolves goalie on Saturday. Paul, for all the kind of the concerns that being raised over yesterday's performance, how much are you willing to? can see that it might have just been a, a, a difficult day against a very, very good side. I mean, are these are the concerns you have about yesterday's performances concerns you're going to carry in and you think could cost Everton against Luton and Bournemouth, obviously Brentford coming up before then away from home? Um, or do you actually, you know, think that against weaker opposition, Everton might be able to have more success with the same game plan, which, you know, I mean... Obviously, Fulham and Wolves both ended up in the same you know, result that Arsenal did, but Emmett had a lot more joy going forward in those games. It was a, the issue was finishing chances rather than creativity. Well, I thought the, the supporters were incredibly patient yesterday. I think if we set up like that against Luton and Bournemouth, I don't think that patience will last anywhere near as long. Uh, so it's not it's not it was just it was just drab. It was grim. It was dreary. So we're only a day out from it. So. Yeah, the disappointment is still is still large at the moment. Again, 
the days to come across the course of the season. I hate to say it because it sounds so defeatist, but it's just where we are as a team and a club at the moment. One nil home defeat to Arsenal is really not going to change our destiny. It's those two games that we've got coming up, and and sadly, it's the two games that we've had already this season, and 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 that's what makes it worse. We've had three games at home now, not scored one, not got a single point. You know, if we would have won those two games earlier in the season, yesterday doesn't matter as much. Uh, I certainly hope we don't play like that in the, those two games to come, and, and we shouldn't because. You know, Dyche is coming in for a fair bit of stick from the supporters and on this podcast today, and I think it's I think it's deserved. But you know, he set us certainly against Fulham. We played we played really well, and I think we had more than enough chances against Wolves, and that was without you know probably a recognised centre forward or certainly a recognised Everton centre forward, which I don't think Mopai ever was. So it, all it's done is yesterday is just piled more pressure onto those two home games coming up, really, because. Let's face it, Brentford are, are really that's a really tough away game next week. I thought they were the better team uh, against Newcastle for long periods on Saturday. Uh, and it's just the longer we go without the twin, the, the, the higher the pressure goes, really. So there's, there's no reason why we should play like we did yesterday against Luton in two weeks' time, not at all. Uh, if, we, if, we, if you're doing this podcast, we're doing this podcast and it's the same performance again, well... Question marks are really going to be, you know, questions is really going to start to be to be asked. Uh, so no, I'm, you know, in the days to come, I will get over yesterday, but you know, the start's not been good enough, has it at all? No, no. I think what I was more getting at with with with, with Luton and Bournemouth is, you know, I still think that to some degree that, that was a very poor performance from the midfield three, partly because they were forced so deep by a better side, uh, and I and I think that if you put the same eleven out. Probably with you know against Luton or Bournemouth, I think they're ten yards further up the pitch just because the the opposition aren't as good, um, and from there perhaps can act as a better springboard going forward. Um, Gav, I mean you know I learned my match report on this uh, yesterday. Um, I mean three defeats at Goodison Park. I think that's six losses in seven at home. Yeah, yeah that that really isn't good. I think. You know, Luton is a must-win. I don't think there's any doubt about that. Bournemouth is a game which is looking very, very big, isn't it? Because I think Everton can beat Luton and not learn anything. And we could not learn anything about where Everton are at the moment this season. I think Bournemouth is probably going to be at a point when this squad is at its peak fitness-wise. You know, I think, you know, Wow. Yeah, Cavalier will have been back for a while. Better will have integrated properly. Dan Juma will have integrated properly. McNeil should be match fit. Um, Harrison will probably be back around then as well. Yeah, that's the kind of that feels like a big barometer as to where the next stage of Everton season is going to lie. Is because I think yeah, that mid table to bottom half of the table type of side, basically the type of game against a competence, a side that is going to be competent, but Everton have to really be beaten at home if they're going to have a chance of avoiding a really bleak relegation battle this season. Yeah, yeah. Dice yeah, is probably going to have everything that he's going to have available in that squad for certainly until January, probably for most of this season, for that game. It's getting bigger and bigger, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it's just so the Luton game's first, isn't it? I think Luton and Bournemouth. I'm skipping yeah. out Brentford and Luton because I'm thinking if we're trying to be, I think if we're trying to be fair to Deitch and and try not put too much pressure on the situation. Obviously, you can't give games away, but I think Brentford's a very difficult game on Saturday. And then yeah. 
on the flip side, trying to not give too much credit to Deitch or anyone if it comes off. I think Luton yeah. basically just have to win. But that we we don't learn much about this Everton side if because everyone's you know should be going to beat Luton. Yeah. No, no, I get that. I get that. I think I think the I think what you're saying in a roundabout way possibly that we're saying here is is that we possibly expect Luton to dare I say go back go straight back down and, and there's a group of probably four or five clubs that have got a possibility of being relegated and that we're, we're in that group and probably Bournemouth are in that group and yeah, so I mean, they're, they're, they're definitely and I think Bournemouth I'm, I'm unsure about them and obviously they made some good signings and they, yeah, yeah they have done but you still I, I'm, I'm yeah. still yeah I, you know I, I, I'm not saying that I, I wouldn't I'm probably showing, you know, I don't give Bournemouth a stick here, but I wouldn't necessarily see the mid, mid-table. But I think um, they're, they're possibly in that group anyway with us, that little, that, that little mini-table. And, and I think if you win your games against that group, I think that will be, you know, that's going to be beneficial to you. But the Luton games are must win. You know what? If you offered me four points in those two games, now I'd take it. Yeah. If they lost, because you've got the Derby, then have me the Derby's the twenty first of October. But you give me four points in two games, I'd take it now. How um, how what do you how badly things need to get before Deitch gets under pressure? Or do you think he's under pressure now? <sighs> if, you, if you want me to answer that question, I think he's under pressure now. I think that's possibly a little bit unfair considering the, the, the amount of or the lack of resource available to him during the summer. But some of it comes down to what we've just been speaking about here. Um, I think, I think what you'd say is about, about is if we follow the wolves, if we play like that at home in those two games, I think we'll get we'll get points. Um, I, I think our luck's got to change a little bit in goal against some of the, the less stronger teams, which which and uh, and I think we'll have a better complement of players. But he is he's under pressure, and I think. Um, I think if you said to him take five points in the next three games because I can see he gets something at Brentford draw at Brentford's not beyond the realms of possibility not Man City already he needs that because he won first two, two of his first three games is it and is it three three and twenty he's won Premier League matches which is you know and three and twenty that's if you've only done that then you're going to be under pressure and, and I think he is at the moment and you know, it's a big, big, uh, big month or two for him, isn't it? Really? I mean, Paul, what do you think? I mean, with instability, so much instability off the pitch, and I think let's be honest, instability on the pitch. When you look at the state of that transfer window, I mean, like personally, I think that a lot's going to go wrong before Dyche is really under pressure. Just because I think they just, I don't know where they go beyond that, and I think he needs a bit of time, especially having had some influence in this transfer window as well to build the side together. Like, you know, I, I. I don't think he can be complacent about where he is at, at, at the minute, but I think there's still some way to go before he'd be under any real pressure, I think. Paul, what do you think? Yeah, we need another managerial change, like a hole in the head, particularly, <laughs> what's, going there, particularly what's going on off the field at the moment. <sighs> yeah, yeah. He, I, I, I will... He kept us up last season and he deserves credit for that because with with the only manager and the only squad in the whole of the Premier League not to have it reinforced in January and actually to give it make it weakened by the sale of Anthony Gordon. He did his he did what was needed. And this season, if you try and be 
and emotional about it. Yesterday was really disappointing, just the nature of the performance. You know, I think if we would have lost 3-1 and had a go, I think people wouldn't be as disappointed as they are today. Villa was a disgrace. There's no getting away from that. That performance was shocking, as was the whole performance again. That's the first half performance at Doncaster, but he got the required response in the second half. Other than that, I think Sheffield United was a, an okay performance. You know, you probably take a point away from there. And the, the two home defeats against Wolves and Fulham, I wouldn't particularly put on him. I, you know, the players have got to finish the chances in that game. So, for myself, I'm I'm not looking for him to be you know to be going anywhere. Certainly at this juncture, but you know, Brentford away, Villa away in the cup, they are two hard games because Villa's squad now is. They've got strength and depth. I think they're, you know, even with four, five, six changes, it will be a very difficult, very difficult night there. I think he will be under huge pressure if we go into those Luton and Bournemouth games, having lost <coughs> Villa. You know, I think I, I, I agree with Gav. If we could take five points from these next games, slap your hand off right now. But I think if we go into those two home games with out of the cup and having lost to Brentford, I think he'll need two wins really probably go into a wider discussion about the club off the field now but even if he even if he is bang on the pressure going into those games this is all very you know speculative now I don't even know if we can be in a position to change managers you know with everything that's going on you're in you're in a dangerous sealing my transition here I mean, yeah, I, I mean, I largely agree. You, you know, I, I think that for the disappointment of only having one point from the first five games of this season, I think I tend to have some sympathy for Deitch when you look at the underlying performances, Villa aside, um, you know, obviously Wolves and Fulham. I think had he had the squad that was available to him now, I think that both of those would probably, you know, if he'd have had either Calvert-Lewin or Beto up front, I think they probably would have at least taken four points from those games, maybe more. And even yes, like I get the disappointment, I get the frustration, um, but I still am perhaps a little bit more willing to concede it as, as more of a bad day at the office against a very good side than necessarily something to kind of incite too much panic. I mean, albeit I do think there are a couple of warning signs that have to be dealt with pretty quickly. And I think the state of that middle, that three-man midfield that kept Everton up to a large degree last season, I think shaking it up might be a little bit useful in the coming games, even if it's just to add a little bit of a reminder that there's some competition there, even with Awobi's departure. Dave, this, this obviously works as a good opportunity to bring you in. Uh, we'll move on to 777 in a minute, but I'll just ask you for your thoughts on this first, bear in mind we're on this topic. I mean, if Everton were to have any concerns around Deitch, and, and as I say, just to make my thoughts clear, I think they'd be wrong to do so at the moment. Uh, and like Paul says, I think any managerial change like a like a hole in the head, do you think they could actually afford it? It's a difficult one, because ultimately, uh, who factors in who's paying the compensation in, in that respect. It'd have to be almost a conversation between two parties, you know, while there's an agreement and principle between Mishiri and, and 777 right now. It's, um, you know, Everton not under new ownership. It's still the football club owned by Farad Mishiri. But you, you do imagine that there's gonna, there would have to be a conversation that takes place there in terms of what does the severance package look like? Is this the right person to uh, to take us forward, etc.? And it might be a decision which the, the new owners, the prospective new owners... Um, may not agree with. Um, my hunch would be that they, they, they would probably, you know, want anything like that in terms of a decision-making process moving forward to, to be under their control. But I mean, look, I mean, 
where are we now? We are in, you know, we're heading into October. This, you know, seeking regulatory approval for this for this deal, if it goes ahead at all, could take up to 12 weeks, maybe longer. Um, and it, it's a very strange time. Um, you know, I, I'm trying to wrap my brain and think back to a time when another football club was was thinking about changing manager in between a takeover. And it's, it's quite difficult because that, that happens, that break happens sometimes when... Um, Takeovers happened. It happened at Liverpool back in back in 2010, etc. But um, when the stakes are so high, because ultimately the 777 purchase of this football club, they look towards buying a Premier League asset, not uh, and and does ha- hanging fire um, too long? Does that risk their investment moving forward? Does that make it? Uh, does that change the valuation of the football club if the, the risk of relegations increase? Because ultimately there would have been a great price for for a Premier League football club. Um, so there's a lot of questions around that. It's really difficult, actually, because I, I don't think there's any appetite from either side to to see um, see that happen. I think they'll be hoping um, to God that the, the club just manages to, to bump along, pick up the points it needs to, to just keep itself in the mix and then make a sensible decision upon either completion of this uh, of this takeover or, or whether or not Mashiri remains in situ. But either way, it's you know it's several million pounds worth of compensation which would have to be factored in at a time when they're already going to have to seek um, huge amounts to, to complete a purchase of a football club anyway. Dave, one of the things that we heard on, on Friday, you know, perhaps more so in, in background talks, is both Everton and 777 seem confident that they will get the approval that they need from the regulatory bodies. Obviously, the Premier League being one financial conduct authority being the other. Now, they would say that. Of course they would. Um, I mean, from someone that's, that's more of an expert in this field and they obviously would have looked at this over over the weekend, you know, we've seen a number of headlines over the course of, to be honest, the past week, they predate the announcement suggesting that 777 would have difficulty getting a deal over the line with the regulators when they come under scrutiny. What's, what's your current understanding of the situation? And, and obviously there's there's two elements to this, I think, isn't there? So on the one hand, you have the regulatory approval. Can they pass, pass the, the, the fit and proper owners test that both the Premier League and the Financial Conduct Authority now now undertake? And then separately, obviously, we know that one of the major issues that probably held back any sale or investment in Everton over recent months, uh, or in the 18 months that Mashiri has, has been looking for you know, for the very least support with the financial burden of Everton is the fact that on top of anything that he might try and hope to salvage from from, from the club, there's there's all these creditors as well. You know, you have the likes of of, of, of rights and media funding that, you know, objected, it seems, to the MSP deal and you know, they're owed around £200 million. You now have MSP effectively having a £100 million loan with, with Everton. I mean, there's a lot of... I's to dot and T's to cross there for, for seven mm-hmm. seven. How easy is it going to be? Um, I think almost the, the biggest issues that are the ones you touched on uh, towards the back end there. It's the um, ensuring that the, the existing creditors are happy um, with with a takeover deal because obviously the, the previous one with, with MSP um, it was was ended because of objections to to elements of the deal and the valuation of equity and and uh, and. and Kind of dilution of um, security against their loan for, for rights and media funding, but then obviously you've got now MSP in the picture as well. So uh, are they going to object to uh, takeover of uh, by the football club of a 
uh, a party who they beat to uh, exclusivity talks you know, a, a few weeks ago. Um, and then the second biggest issue is proof of funding. Um, leverage, fully leveraged buyouts are now banned by the Premier League. I mean, that won't be, you know, there would be an element of it. I mean, this purchase would be debt and equity. Um so I believe so. So the, you know there are there are various options available to seven 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 in terms of securing funding. But I, I don't I don't think that the um, some of the issues which were raised around potentially um, one of the directors, Josh Wanders, um, previous criminal uh, record or criminal convictions, etc., or some of the scrutiny around the multi club model. I don't think that at the moment um, would be enough for this deal to be stopped. I think the biggest. Um, biggest obstacles to me do appear to be the getting the creditors to, to agree to the deal uh, and also the, the proof of funding because, you know, it, it wouldn't have got to this point and, and we, we've had conversations about this previously that it wouldn't have got to this point if there wasn't some confidence um, from 777 and Mishiri's side that they would be able to overcome these obstacles but, you know, this is finance and curveballs curve get thrown Um with regards to this, and obviously we've seen the headlines over the weekend about one of the you know, MSP potentially being uh, objecting uh, to, to to a takeover. Um, again, the, the stance being today from 777, as, as you would expect, as um, they're confident of being able to to tick all the boxes they need to, to, to acquire the club. But I do think those two things are, are the biggest barriers to, to getting this concluded in a, in a positive fashion for Mashiri. Thanks, Steve. Um, Gav, I'm not sure if you saw this uh, over the weekend, but we saw herds of Berlin fans now protesting against 777. Yeah. They're another club within its uh, its stable. So, I mean, you know, albeit only a cursory glance, it's very easy to find three out of seven sets of fan bases that are quite open yeah. in their disapproval of, of 777's, involved, 777's involvement in the club. I mean... You know, three days on from when we last spoke about this on Friday, have you seen, read, heard anything to allay your, you know, any concerns you may have about this this, this move? Uh, in a word, no. Um, I could also say that the more you, you, you delve into things, you, you more you find reasons to think that they're not suitable owners. But this goes back to what I said on, on Friday, isn't it? If you've got no options or few options, then you, you end up getting something that is... You know, not not an ideal solution. This is a bit of an understatement. That's where Mashiri is here, isn't he? Really, when he, where he where he's fishing at the moment is is you know, and he's not fishing in the blue chip pond. Is he? He's fishing elsewhere, and and I think um, that's reflected in you know who's I'd say seven 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 and and their reputation, and, and that, that that is a concern, isn't it? Really, I don't know what you think about this. Is where does the stadium sit in all of this in terms of when it's completed? Can can they, would they, is it in their best interest to retain, if, if, if Tube 777 come in, is it in their best interest to retain the stadium or would that be an asset they'd want to look to offload and get a bit of money for? Is, is, no, is that I, I imagine the, the, the stadium, like anywhere, is the um, one of the biggest assets that um, investors want they want ultimately a lot of the time they want, they want land. I mean, it's not for for redevelopment or anything now. It's for for the potential. If 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 they acquired Everton Court, Everton being successful in the future, is maximising 
um, the yeah. benefit of having a new stadium and that'll be commercial revenues and also we had that talk in the past about ancillary development around around Liverpool potentially being included yeah. in, in that work but yeah in order for, for Everton to be um, commercially successful not only does it, is it predicated on being the Premier League um, it's also the ability for, for the owners to have um, kind of say over how they operate and the stadium moving forward I don't think they want to be in uh, in kind of deference to, to any other owners. I mean, we see this issue in uh, Paris of Paris Saint-Germain. I mean, they rent the city off uh, the Council of Paris and the main issue for them at the moment is they don't they, they want to expand, they want to do things to it or they want to uh, have certain events yeah. held on it to try and raise money. Ultimately, they you know, it's kind of a, they, they pay rent for it and they don't get to see the benefit of, of having an asset in, in the city. So I imagine this is, you know, it is core part of... Um, them wanting to acquire the club is is, is having the, the kind of the the stadium as, as the centerpiece really. Does that does that full process, Dave, revolve around the you know, the, the hope and belief that they would have a long term strategy that where in which seven 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 and Everton's benefits align, Jesus Sean Dyche word, as a, you know, as opposed to, you know, if seven 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 would perhaps put their interests first and operate from that perspective, is, is would there be any potential for them to look at selling the stadium in that respect to perhaps get a cash windfall? Or... Um, I I don't think so. No, I think I mean I, my view on seven 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 is I mean I don't know they are a, a company which kind of emerged um, in, on the football scene in what 2018, 2019. Covid's been a great driver of. Uh, in terms of acquiring football clubs because it presented an opportunity where football clubs needed capital uh, more willing to, to take it on um, because of the impacts of the pandemic. So they've acquired football clubs on the cheap. Now, in, in reality, it's hard to know. I know we, well, we look at what happens at Herta, uh, Red Star, Vasco da Gama. Um, it's all still quite in the infancy stage almost a lot of those acquisitions I mean they they would point to Genoa being somewhere where they've been a couple a bit longer where they've started to try and affect some kind of positive change and it hasn't been you know earth shattering but they've made some progression and there, there isn't kind of the hostility you would expect there so it's hard to kind of know um, you know you talk about a long term play it's, a, it's hard to to, to to see any kind of evidence of anything really because it's a it's a firm which is you know um my both my kids are older than it so it's um it's like uh yeah it's hard to know so much uh, about what it will look like after a certain point because at, at the moment everything is new so their their acquisitions of um of, the vasco da gama one was was interesting because it was an acquisition at a time when um so brazil uh, brazilian super league is going to be uh, it's changing the way it's governed and regulated and it's going to become more like a super it's going to become a super league so it's going to acquire the biggest biggest most his, historic teams from Brazil change the way it's regulated and the teams get a bigger slice of broadcast revenue because they look at it and think well we're Brazil we produce the best players in the world why have we got one of you know a, a, an unimpressive domestic league so I understand the investment there the Herter one they bought for a song at 15 million um, it was a club already in free fall, still falling. So it's, it's how you, it's how, you know, it's how, how quickly you can turn these things around. But um, in reality, we, we don't really know too much about them, do we? Because I mean, we've we've we had the announcement Friday with this. Obviously, there's been explosive allegations about certain aspects of um, of their previous business dealings. But in terms of 
um, of knowing too much about them as a business, as, as people, it's, it's been quite difficult. So uh, hopefully we'll get that chance uh, before uh, any kind of sale, you know, is concluded. It'd be nice to try and ascertain what these, you know, the, the real real story is behind it. But in terms of a long-term plan, it's hard to know what kind of long-term plan is when, when, when kind of all their investments are only two or three years old. That's it, Dave. I'll, I'll, I'll finish with you just for one last thing before we, we wrap it up. Obviously, we know that, you know, this is going to take, you know, certainly a couple of months. Uh, there's a hope that there's a, there's a hope that it'll get done before the end of the year. If it does get done at all, uh, yeah, that's from an Everton and a seven 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 perspective, of course. Um, what that means for things like January is something I think we'll discuss in in, in future podcasts. Obviously, you know, things are looking it's a difficult start to the season for Everton, and that I mean. <laughs> I'm starting to look to that towards that December already and the run of fixtures that Everton have got there and just trying to think, well, that's going to be a very different, a very busy and a very difficult month, December. And bearing in mind that we already know that Everton aren't going to get off to the start that we hoped was a, a realistic possibility, bearing in mind how kind of fixture this had been. You know, you could see a little bit of clamour going into January whereby the club may need a bit of strengthening and who makes those decisions, what money is available is going to be a big question, but we'll park that issue for the time being. And just what I want to finish on is now that we've had the announcement and whilst we go through the regulatory process, I know that 777 have said that they're not particularly keen to kind of communicate due to respect for the, you know, the, the governance process at the moment. I think that that's the wrong decision. I wrote my Royal Blue on this the other day. I think they can be relatively open without prejudicing anything, um, any of those formal procedures. And I think that Everton fans deserve, rather than 777 say, give us the benefit of that when there's all this negative stuff out there. I think Everton fans, bearing in mind how important they are to the club, both on and off the pitch, you know, I, I think they deserve 777 coming out and giving them a little bit of insight into those plans. But... Again, moving away from that, do you? Ex- what should we be looking out for between now and Christmas? Is it just a case of waiting and seeing until you know the checks all come back and a decision made either way, or are there any? Is there anything else that's likely to come out in the public domain in between that time that will give us any insights into, into into what's going on? And obviously, I know that perhaps the biggest thing that you might mention is going to be next month's hearing in relation to the alleged uh, breach of Premier League financial regulations. Yeah, and, that, and that's going to be um, impactful to, to what happens to, to the takeover. How you know what action, if any, is taken against the football club? Because if you know if it's already struggling this season and there's a you know a points deduction, um, then that will likely see uh, a return to, to the drawing board in terms of what happens because it'll change. You know, it probably changes the value of the football club because when this deal has been agreed, I mean, they've agreed it on the basis that this is a Premier League football club. Um, if there are issues which have happened, you know, kind of under previous ownership or, or Mashiri's ownership, or if it would have been previous ownership, if 777 take, uh, take control, then um, that's to the detriment of the... Uh, of, of the new owners and the price, so so that's a you know that that could well delay this again. Uh, another thing you might you know we, we may well see uh, in the coming uh, over the next over the course of the next month could well be a. Uh, it was mentioned uh, in by Bloomberg about uh, six weeks ago that it was going to be a capital raise uh, that seven 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 was seeking via Tafosi, which was going to be about two hundred twenty million dollars. Uh, believe that. Um, could see the light of day in the next couple of weeks. However, that isn't, uh, I'm so I'm told, linked to the funding of 
the football club uh, take over any of that that money. That's for, for other strategic objectives uh, away from the Everton deal. So they will be searching elsewhere for, for any additional capital they need to complete the Everton purchase. I mean, they're con- convinced they have proof of funds on that, etc. But if that, from what I'm told, that's a posy capital raise, which was mentioned in about six weeks ago, won't be impacting Everton's takeover. Is it? I'm just going to ask, this is a, a very kind of naive question, so apologies oh. for this. If they were to raise the 200 odd million that they're looking for from that Tafosi, um, but their strategy would be to use it elsewhere. I mean, is there any chance they could use it to kind of help strengthen their financial case to the Premier League? And then, even though they might have long, you know, in the longer term, they might have different ambitions for it. Um, potentially, I mean, they'll have to. What they have to do as part of this Premier League test is show is obviously proof of funds, but then a business plan for the next twelve months, right. which will very much have to involve around. You know, it'll. Um, They'll have to show they've not only got the funds for the takeover, but also for, to impl- implement kind of progressive change right. moving forward over 12 months. So I don't think it'd be uh, something that they'd be able to, to really use to, to strong arm the the Premier League. I think Josh Wander's recent election to the, Euro- to the uh, European Clubs Association wasn't without some element of showing uh, a stronger a case maybe for acquisition through obviously he represents standard liaise through that that nomination that election to the board but having had to pass those ECA checks I think he probably um, it, it gives 777 a, a more visible um, place on, on the European football stage so I think that was quite telling the timing of, of that particular uh, seeking for election but but yeah I think you know it's going to be a very very interesting next 8-12 weeks or so uh, and, and what happens on and off the field will be, you know, that means there's a lot at stake. Whether it's uh, you know, it, Everton's fortunes and if they if they continue to sink, uh, what happens at the uh, the independent commission hearing over the um, the profit and sustainability allegations of breaching those, and also the Premier League checks. So I don't think there's ever been more at stake for Everton Football Club than um, than between now and Christmas, really. And it's um, it's it's a crucial, crucial time. And as you said before, Joe, I think it would be nice to be able to to quiz, uh, you know, within the realms of what's allowed via NDAs through financial disclosure, etc., um, about what really is the plan uh, for for who is who could take over because I think Everton fans really need to know. Really appreciate that insight, Dave. Thank you. Obviously, like Dave says, there is clearly going to be a very, very important few months coming up for Everton and hopefully you'll uh, you'll come to us because we'll have all the latest on it throughout. So we've been a Royal Blue podcast today. Thank you very much for listening to us. We hope you have a wonderful week. We'll be back with you on Friday ahead of, let's hope it'll be a good trip to London with Brentford coming up on Saturday. Thanks so much for joining us, everyone. You've been listening to the Royal Blue Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. 